Hello and welcome back to The Path, the podcast from Lifestyle RX. I'm Dan and joining me again is Dr. Burns today. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great today. Good. So this is episode three. Um, as people have been listening, they've been sending us in a lot of questions. So that's great. So we figured for this episode, we're going to spend uh, all of today answering your questions. So we have a bunch of them lined up and we're just going to go through them and we'll see how many we get through and we'll answer a bunch of these. So looking forward to it. So I guess we'll just jump right in. I'll read the questions and then we'll go from there. So first question, um, someone says, hello, I'm curious as to how long do we need to fast? Do we do it seven days a week? And then do we keep doing that for, for months on end? Or I'm curious how that, how the length of it works. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of mystery around fasting, it seems. Um, so the first thing, you know, uh, in, in our eat better strategy, we talk about a 12 hour fast, 12 hour overnight fast. In some respects, we shouldn't, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing special about that. That just should be every day. You want about 12 hours to go, go by what that you don't eat. Um, and that just aligns with your physiology. Your body's not expecting food at nighttime. So 12 hours is, is, is pretty good. Um, if it's 11 and a half, 12 and a half, it's, it's kind of the same thing. We use in the program, we'll actually extend that fast up to about 16 hours. And the reason for that is just when you have insulin resistance, um, your insulin levels are often too high during the day to allow for fat burning. So insulin actually inhibits fat burning. At nighttime, your insulin levels start to drop off and they get low enough that it allows for some fat burning. And that's the whole idea of the metabolic switch. We flip the metabolic switch, we get some fat burning and, uh, and, and usually that'll happen in the 12 hour period. So that's why we like to do it every night so that we get that metabolic switch to fire. If we're trying to lose weight though, we're burning fat at nighttime, get up in the morning. And it, as long as we're not generating, you know, disproportionate hunger signal, we'll carry that fasting for a few more hours in that fat burning window. And we'll go up to 16 hours. We like to stop at 16 hours though. And the reason mm -hmm. for that is um, we, we, we eat for three reasons, right? We eat for energy, we eat for growth and we eat for repair. The energy part is kind of covered because we've got this stored energy that we're trying to get rid of called fat. Um, but growth and repair, we need to be sure that we're getting enough protein in and we don't store protein in our bodies. So, so generally speaking, we kind of like to get the fast going, you know, 12 hours kind of for everybody. And then we'll increase that up to 16 hours as a, as a way to kind of lose, uh, lose a little bit more weight. Um, the more consistent we can be, the better, um, but not every day is equal in your lives, right? So some days you're going to get up and, and it's like, you're going to have a choice between breaking the fast of 12 hours or waiting till 21 hours, just cause you're not going to get an opportunity. So on those days, you, you're going to break the fast at 12 hours and, and just kind of accept that that's the way that day is. Um, over time, if you pick up more days that are over 12 hours, that's probably going to help. Um, but there's, you, you don't have to do the same thing every single day. Um, so you kind of have to fit, fit it into, into your life as you kind of hit your weight target. Um, you can kind of see, you know, if you stabilize in your weight target, you feel good with fasting 14 or 16 hours, you can leave it there. Um, you can go back to 12 hour fasts. Um, and it's kind of up to you, uh, how you feel and what, what works with your life. A lot of people that do fasting in our programs often find that that's just something that they continue with, even once they hit their kind of 
optimal weight. They're not gaining or losing weight. Um, they feel really good at it and they'll just kind of stick with, with what's been working. Cool. Yeah. All right. Next question then. So this one says, I just started the program. So they're referring to our Lifestyle RX 4 plus 2 program. And I feel so overwhelmed. Where do I start? Yeah. So this is this is the challenge, um, especially in the community, because there's so much information and so many people have so many questions. Uh, and the podcast is probably adding to that. Um, <laughs> if you just simply follow the program, we lay out one behavior per week. And so if you're feeling overwhelmed, just put the blinkers on, do the online component, show up to your group, focus on one behavior per week, you know, look, look at changing those things that are in context of, of that one behavior each week. And, um, and, and that's really it, right? You, you, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's just a good reminder that you can't change everything all at once. Um, and the program really is laid out really sequentially. And so if you just kind of follow that along and don't, don't look or read anything else. Um, it'll probably help settle the, the feeling of being overwhelmed. The one thing I do remind people of all the time is the way we learn is, is interesting because, um, you know, before we learn, you know, learn about something, we sometimes don't even know we need to learn about it. So we're kind of unconscious and we're not competent, right? So mm-hmm. that conscious incompetence. Um, then we become conscious of it but we're not competent. And so that's quite distressing because we know that we should be doing some stuff, but we don't really know how to do it yet. Then we get through that and we become conscious and we actually become competent, but we are thinking a lot about these things, right? Uh, And then finally we get to the place where we're competent, but now we're unconscious about it. And this last fall, my son was learning to drive and it was was really great because (laughs) I just got to watch this. You know, yeah. at, at first he had just read a book and he got in the car and there was no confidence, right? And so he had to concentrate a lot and had to learn how to do things. Then he went through that phase where, boy, he was pretty competent, but super conscious. Couldn't have the radio on. We couldn't talk. He had to think about <laughs> yeah. every left-hand turn. And then he eventually gets his license. And now um, I'm sure he's driving around with his friends and the radio's blasting and he's, you know... <laughs> You get to those points where you show up where you were driving like, oh, how did I get here? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So um, just a reminder, that is the learning process here. So at the beginning, that feeling of overwhelm is actually really natural. If it's getting to the place where you're getting worried that you might kind of just, you know, stop, then then just just focus on the, the, you know, the behaviors that are in the program each week. Awesome. Okay, next question here. They say, my question is about protein. Once I got into my late 60s, they're now 72, my family doctor told me to cut back on protein. He said, uh, he or she said, at my age, I was no longer growing, so did not need as much protein. I get much of my protein through yogurt and cheese and other plant-based products. I have meat from time to time. If my doctor was correct, how much protein, protein, how much protein should I have daily to support my diabetic diet? Okay. So I hate to say this, but your doctor is categorically wrong here. Um, <laughs> maybe just not up to the latest um, research. What we're seeing um, as people age, we have more trouble uh, taking on protein and built, incorporating into our muscles. So we develop something called anabolic resistance. And so the latest studies are saying that you um, you probably need, uh, as you're older, above 65, you probably need somewhere 
around 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight, which if you multiply that out, it's a lot. Um, in our per, you know, and just for perspective, the, the RDA, kind of the recommended daily uh, amount that, um, that, that's you know, been set, was set at 0.8. And that's, the, that's kind of the minimal amount that you need in order to replace proteins that are being damaged. Mm. Uh, so there's always a bit of protein turnover. So even though you're not growing, you're constantly repairing, right? So receptors are being turned over, hormones are being built, um, you know, uh, enzymes are being built and turned over, and you're turning over muscle. So, um, so you do need this 0.8 at a bare minimum. Um, and then the challenge becomes that it's hard for you to absorb it. So you actually have to push the protein level up when you're 65 mm. or above. Now, the thing that gets everyone confused is, well, if I'm overweight, do I really, because, you know, clearly if some of my weight is fat related, you know, uh, do I really need to multiply that amount because <laughs> it, it could get to some pretty big yeah. numbers. Um, so what we've landed on for, for optimal for, for diabetes, and it covers for people who are over 65, is uh, 1.2 to 1.6 uh, grams per kilogram. If you're heavier, go on the lower end of the range. If you're lighter, go on the higher end of the range. And then uh, Jess Pernak, our lead dietitian, uh, introduces common sense to this, which is start with where you're at and gradually increase the protein. Um, protein's hard to add. It's very satiating. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons we, we want to have protein in every meal is for that satiating effect. Um, but, you know, start from where you're at. See kind of, you know, how close are you to the 1.2? Um, kind of work your way there and then uh, and then maybe try to push a little bit beyond that. Um, but and then there's one other factor um, as we age that becomes impaired. And this isn't this is actually I mean, <laughs> as we age in our 30s, this changes. So it goes way, way back. Um, so when we're very young and we are growing, our body can incorporate virtually any any protein that we eat gets gets incorporated into muscle. Um, so we very easily can pick up protein from diet. Um, as we get older, what has to happen is the meal has to, we have to clear a certain threshold. There's a certain amount of amino acids in the blood that's necessary to even trigger uptake into the muscle. And yeah. then just to make it really hard for us, there's a cap on that. And so for most people, about 30 to 50 grams, you know, at least 30. So if you're, if you're, if you're lighter or slighter, maybe it's 25, but you know, 30 to 50 grams. Um, if you eat more, that protein is not going to get in either, right? And so if you take your total amount of protein that you need per day, you're going to have to divide it into individual, like you're going to have to divide it into these uh, kind of yeah. portions, which ends up usually meaning that there's, for, for most people, um, they're going to have to eat three, three meals or two meals plus a protein snack in order to kind of get enough protein uh, in during the day. So... Yeah, hate to disagree with with a, a family doctor, but um, but this is one that you you when you know you're 72 now. When you're 92, uh, this person will really appreciate if they've loaded up on protein and maintained muscle mass. Excellent. Okay. All right. The next one here. See if I can stumble my words a little bit less this time. So as uh, you increase your exercise levels and your blood sugar and A1C levels drop into more acceptable ranges. How do you change your eating habits or diets to stave off hunger and avoid low blood sugar numbers without breaking your fasting window? Or would you change your fasting times? Okay. So, so a couple of things here. Um, when your blood sugar is 
improve. That obviously is is kind of what we're trying to accomplish here. Um, but more profoundly, we're we're trying to get rid of the insulin resistance. So when we do the one on one assessments, um, we'll we'll actually kind of target what at what weight do we think you will have got rid of the fat in the liver that's causing the insulin resistance. And that's the ultimate endpoint is trying to trying to get to the place where you've got rid of that insulin resistance. So um, blood sugars and A1C is one component of that. So the other piece is this is lifestyle. It's not a diet, right? So we're not doing this temporarily. We're doing lifestyle changes that we can maintain really forever. And mm-hmm. so um, you shouldn't be hungry on this. If you're hungry, it's not working. Um, so one of the things that's really profound and people see it usually kind of weeks three or four is that um, hunger and cravings disappear and they realize, you know, you realize that um, what you thought was hunger really wasn't hunger. It was actually craving on the basis of the insulin resistance. So um, you shouldn't be hungry. That's shouldn't, shouldn't be an issue. Low blood sugars as well. The only reason you'll get a low blood sugar that, that is anything to worry about is uh, if you're taking insulin or if you're on a sulfonylurea drug like glycoside or glyburide, um, those drugs can push your blood sugars lower. And so generally speaking, we will identify those in the initial consultation and give you some specific guidance around decreasing or, or stopping those uh, medications as you, as you make progress. The other medications um, are not going to be an issue. So in terms of low blood, blood sugar, so, so that part you, you shouldn't really have to worry about. Um, your fasting window, as we said, 12 hours is just normal. We probably shouldn't even call it fasting. It should just be kind of what you normally yeah. do. Um, and I think we touched base on, on why you would, you know, you know, if you, if you're at weight target, then, you know, you can, you can decrease back to that 12, 12 hour fast is, is perfectly acceptable. All right. Okay. So the next one here, it says in the 10 things to ditch from the kitsch, which is a, I think it's in, is it week two? Where we go yeah. over that yeah. week two. Yep. Yeah. Um, it mentioned whole wheat bread, canola oil, and cereals such as, uh, all brand buds and even yogurt. Um, so I guess we'll do this question in segments here. So first off for the yogurt, does it include plain yogurt? No. So what we're getting at there are the sweetened yogurt products, right? So there, there's a lot of yogurt that has, uh, just a lot, well, they, there's a lot of yogurt that has stuff added to it above and beyond sugar. But, um, so plain yogurt, uh, is, is perfectly fine, but the sweetened yogurt we want to get rid of. All right. And the next section here is also in peanut butter. And they wonder, does this include natural peanut butter? Yeah. So with peanut butter, peanut butter is a great food, um, but the only ingredient in peanut butter should be peanuts. <laughs> so <laughs> if you get buy some peanut butter and it has a whole bunch of other things after the peanuts, then um, that's adulterated peanut butter. And you should back on the shelf and get one that just says peanuts. Um, the challenge and why they put all that other stuff in is if you just make peanut butter from peanuts, the oil separates in the jar. Mm. And so you, when you get it, you have to kind of stir it around. And in our household, that's the least favorite task. So when one <laughs> is finished, you know, everyone's trying to get the last bit out so they don't have to be the guy, to, you know, that goes stirs the next one, stirs the next one. Um, so, so yeah, peanut butter is a great food, but yeah, it should just have peanuts. All right. And then what about the, um, I think they're all brand buds for fiber. What are the thoughts on those? Yeah. So we make a big deal about cereals because pretty much, pretty much, Every cereal is not very good, um, but they have kind of touched on one cereal that probably isn't bad, which are brand buds, um, and, and that can be a pretty reasonable cereal. 
The challenge though with cereal is what do you have the cereal with? You usually have it with milk. And remember, milk is sugar water, right? So <laughs> the sugar in the milk is lactose. So lactose is a molecule of glucose and a molecule of galactose, which will become glucose. Um, and so essentially you don't really want to be drinking, uh, you don't want to be drinking those calories. So whole bowl of milk. Yeah. 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 So, so that's kind of another reason to, to get rid of it. Um, the easy substitution is, you know, uh, steel cut oats or, um, you know, have your plain Greek yogurt, uh, with some, with some nuts or seeds, um, and some, and some, you know, berries. That's a, a good, good substitute there. All right. Perfect. Okay, so next one here. When you talk about reversal of diabetes, how is that different from remission? Or what is the distinction between, I guess, reversal and remission? Yeah, so remission is kind of the destination. So it's defined by a number on the A1C. Um, so the, the, the definition or the accepted definition of remission is a hemoglobin A1C of less than 6.5 um, and, uh, and not being on medications. And then there's differences between how long you have to not be on medications for in order to qualify for quote unquote remission. I have huge problems with this definition. Um, first of all, you know, uh, stopping somebody's metformin when they're, you know, hemoglobin A1C is 6.5 doesn't really make sense. Second, it's, it's kind of confusing things in the, in that, um, if, you know, if we've understood what's happening with the individual, then, and we're talking about reversal and remission, then we're talking about get, reversing the insulin resistance. So mm. let's keep going till we get rid of their insulin resistance and have dealt with the root cause. Um, and so reversal really refers to the process. It's the, and it's, you know, we, 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 we say kind of for shorthand reversal of type two diabetes, really it's a reversal of the insulin resistance component that, that is predictable. And, um, and so in, in our practice, what we try to do for help people do, so we, again, we're more like Sherpas. We don't actually do anything. We guide people. Yeah. What we try to guide people towards is let's find a lifestyle where your behaviors align with your physiology. You start to lose the weight and your blood sugars start to improve. Let's, you know, a, we're not going to stop the lifestyle because it's a lifestyle, right? It's a forever mm -hmm. thing. Um, B, when you get to, you know, an A1C of 6.5 or less, we're super happy for you. That's, that's a great accomplishment, but there's no reason why you can't get that A1C below six or even, you know, below 5.6. And so we just kind of keep going with it. Um, and we will track the insulin resistance component. And that's the component where um, we're, we're more likely to stop all meds when you get to that place. So it, it, it often means that, that, you know, on practical purposes, um, we are starting to discuss for taking you off meds kind of when your A1C gets below 6.5. Um, but we're, we're not going to get super aggressive with that until we see that the insulin resistance is completely gone. Now, the one caveat to all of this is, is I'm a huge believer that people are in control of their own health. And so you obviously are going to have an opinion about when you want to stop medications. Yeah. And if you really, if it's really important to you, you want to stop earlier um, and you're, you've got the lifestyle down, um, it really is only a matter of time with the lifestyle that you're going to see that continued healing in the body that um, will, you know, will allow you to get off of the medication. So sometimes people want to stop early and we will support that. Okay. 
Okay, so next one here. When you fast for 12 plus hours, it seems that the morning sugar level doesn't change much and it is as high as before fasting. What could be the reason for this? Yeah, so we touched on this, I think, in the first week. Um, mm-hmm. and But it's it's a question that, that does keep coming up and I think it's so important. So your blood sugars are really determined by, there's two phases to it, right? So there's kind of the, the absorptive phase when you're absorbing food that you've just eaten. Um, so those blood sugars are very much determined by what you ate and your body's kind of your pancreas's immediate ability to re- release insulin uh, and your muscles ability to store that glucose, you know, uh, with, with insulin. Um, when you're not eating, it's your liver that's producing sugar, right? So once everything's been absorbed and packed away in the cells, your liver has to click in and start to produce a little bit of glucose uh, to maintain that normal blood sugar. And Dan, what's the normal blood sugar equivalent to? How much glucose? One table, one teaspoon. Oops, one, one teaspoon. teaspoon. Yeah. <laughs> so um, your liver is going to produce one teaspoon every thirty minutes uh, at rest, and so kind of two teaspoons per hour. So what happens is overnight when you're fasting, essentially what's happening is is your liver is producing the sugar, and it's you know it's it's you know your brain's using some, your body's using some all is good around five in the morning, you're, uh, you release a little bit of cortisol and that cortisol is kind of your get up and go signal. So as we said, like, I think in the first week, Dan, you're going to be getting up. So let's, let's <laughs> pump out a little bit more cortisol to, so that you have some, uh, extra fuel there when you start moving. And, um, so that sends that signal to get the liver kind of producing a little bit more. And then as the liver kind of produces a bit more blood sugars go up a bit, and what's supposed to happen is you get released just a little bit of insulin to kind of keep it within kind of the normal range. With type 2 diabetes, there's that fat in the liver that's causing mm-hmm. the insulin resistance. And so it doesn't quite put the brake on adequately. And so the blood sugar goes up. And so that's what we see where, where people will have, you know, a blood sugar that, you know, they go to bed with a blood sugar of six, they wake up with a blood sugar of eight. And they're like, wait a second, I didn't eat anything. Yeah. Somebody yeah. sneak some food in at night. <laughs> um, but it's, it's totally normal. And then because it's cortisol related, if you're stressed or if you're not sleeping, um, you know, and you release more cortisol, it, the effect could be more dramatic. And so um, this fasting blood sugar improves over weeks to months, whereas the, uh, you know, your meal response improves literally meal to meal, right? So as you eat a better better aligned meal, you'll see kind of less of a a blood sugar excursion. Perfect. Okay. Okay. The next question here. Um, So this person would like an understanding of what is driving a change in their blood pressure. So they've had about a 20, um, I don't know, what. what, how do you say the unit for blood pressure? Uh, (laughs) Milligram mercury. Okay, perfect. Yeah, uh, drop in systolic and a ten milligram mercury drop in milligram millimeter mercury. <laughs> millimeter. Okay, the the normal one, one twenty over eighty. You know that that those numbers. So they've had a uh, twenty about twenty drop in systolic and about ten drop in diastolic since getting their blood sugar more stable. Yeah, um, I've read that highlands levels impact how constricted your blood vessels are. Is this true, or what other factors are playing into it? Yeah. So this is a great question. Um, yeah, so one of the things that happens um, we see with insulin resistance is blood pressure goes up, and um, and so it's it's something that we see uh, all the time, and it probably it probably is one of the most common reasons for elevated blood pressure is actually insulin resistance. 
so uh, the uh, the the issue as the as the uh, as the patient who wrote this question implies is, is those high levels of insulin. They're they're affecting the ability for the the blood vessels to dilate. Um, so it's a nitric oxide effect on the uh, endothelial lining, uh, epithelial lining. So endothelial lining. I don't know. <laughs> Um, so anyways, the, the, the long and the short of it is high levels of insulin, um, will lead to higher blood pressure. Um, when your insulin levels drop because of the changes that you're making and, and decrease of insulin resistance, blood pressure drops. So it is one of the reasons why whenever we see somebody who's on blood pressure medication, we do kind of warn them at the beginning that as they make these changes, they might start to notice that their blood pressure starts to drop and, mm. uh, in, in, you know, if you're taking the blood pressure medication, it doesn't realize things have changed and, and it continues to push push for lower blood pressure. So if you're getting lightheaded uh, or dizzy, um, that's probably a sign that your blood pressure is lowering. Um, and uh, anybody who's taking anybody who's taking medications for blood, blood pressure should have a blood pressure cuff at home. And so, you know, what you want to do is check your blood pressure. If you're taking a medication and you're starting to see blood pressures you know, under 110 and under 70, then yeah, you probably want to talk to your your, your doctor about that, and, and usually they'll back off a little bit, see what happens. Um, but mm-hmm. again, kind of one of the gratifying things with this work is we deprescribe a lot of blood pressure medications um, as part of the, the whole process. So, um, yeah, so great question. Excellent. Okay. Okay, so there's uh, kind of two questions here that touch on the same topic. So, um um, one of them uh, says, uh, my question is after eating, my sugar level went to 14. Is that normal or should it stay below 10? Another one is kind of what is the normal range of blood sugar that we should be looking for if we're using a CGM or testing our blood sugar like after we eat? What's that? How high should it go or how low should it go if it's in a normal range? Yeah. So um, it's a really good question. And, and there's actually a, a lot to this question in terms of trying to understand it. Um, so you know, when you're eating, um, how high your blood sugar goes is going to be in relationship to a few different factors. So the first factor, of course, is how much carb and how quickly is that carbohydrate being absorbed uh, from what you just ate. So if you have that 32 ounce Coca-Cola where it's going to basically be absorbed directly and quickly, um, that's going to uh, spike your sugar because it's, it's going to be delivering a whole bunch of sugar into your, into your bloodstream. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's, you know, chickpeas that you just ate, those chickpeas are going to take six hours to get fully absorbed. So even though there's a lot of carb with them, it's going to take forever for it to come in. Uh, and it's probably not going to re- result in a huge increase in, in blood sugar. If you're eating something like brown rice where, um, you know, it, there's a lot of carbohydrate and it gets absorbed relatively quickly, um, then it's going to be dependent on a few other factors. And so this carb load comes in, um, remember kind of when you're not eating and everything's been absorbed, it's your liver that's producing glucose and it's going to produce, you know, a teaspoon every half an hour. And so if you need to turn that, that, that liver glucose production off, because if you're eating and, you know, all of a sudden there's carbohydrates starting to enter the blood from your food and your liver's still on, in 30 minutes, you're going to double your blood sugar, right? Because it's going to produce, mm. right? So you could yeah. go from five. You could go from five to ten just on the basis of your liver you not being turned off. So um, what ha- happens is when you first eat, there's a, 
there's an initial release or burst of insulin that's designed to turn the liver off, right? Hmm. So people with diabetes, that first pass of insulin is is one of the things that disappears. They don't do that very well. Interesting. And so, so a lot of the rise in the first thirty minutes uh, is related to the fact that your liver is still producing glucose and is still pumping some in. Um, and so, you know, uh, if you've had long-standing diabetes, then you might not have that first pass. But if you've if you've relatively kind of recent diagnosis, you might be a little bit better at that. Um, so that's kind of the first first part of it. Uh, and then. Your, insulin, your your pancreas has to produce an, a proportionate amount of insulin to the amount of glucose that's coming in. And so that's kind of a, another factor here. So just, you know, is your pancreas able to, you know, if it can't do that first pass, is it able to, you know, get enough uh, insulin mm-hmm. out? Um, yeah. Usually by the, an hour, kind of these factors are all done, right? The liver gets turned off sometime, you know, even... In the worst case, it'll get turned off by by, by an hour. Um, your pancreas is kind of cranked into full gear, producing as much insulin as it can possibly produce. So the next hour, kind of from our, you know, from you know, our one to hour two of absorption, it's all dependent on your muscles. And so here mm-hmm. it's 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 back to, you know, muscles will normally absorb 80 to 90% of the glucose and is there room at the end for the <laughs> coming in? So have yeah. you been exercising or have you done nothing since the last time you ate? Right. And so if you've been sedentary, there's no room at the end. And so yeah. that, uh, that glucose then ends up going back to the liver where it basically gets turned into fat, um, which is part of the problem that we, we were trying to get rid of. So, um, so your muscles are kind of the, the other part. So, so what we see in this, you know, when we look at these CGMs, there's just a, there's just a wealth of information here. It, you know, if you know what you ate, you can kind of figure out all these components uh, and you can kind of figure out what's working or not working. There's some tricks to it, right? If you uh, start, if you eat, and one of the reasons we tell people that, you know, walking after eating a meal is so good is the movement of muscle will allow glucose to enter the muscle without insulin. So even if you can't produce a lot of insulin, but you can move the muscles, you'll, yeah. get, you'll, you'll lower your blood sugar pretty significantly. Um, but back to the person's actual question, <laughs> <laughs> what's the range? So 14, yeah, definitely too high. Um, and you know when we do a glucose challenge, challenge test, so this is where we give people 75 grams of glucose um, and we check their, their blood sugar at two hours. If it's over 11 at two hours, that's diagnostic for diabetes. Um, okay. we, we want it normally should be under 7.8 by two hours. Um, and, uh, and, and really kind of, uh, you know, anywhere between 7.8 and 11 is kind of in that pre-diabetic state. So the, the CGMs are calibrated for a range of four to 10. Uh, and it's great. I think it's, you know, it, time and range, uh, there, there are people who are thinking that time and range on a CGM might be a better measure than hemoglobin A1C for, for yes. what your, your control is. Yeah. Um, what I do in practice is we start with it with, you know, between four and 10. And then what we look for is, is essentially, you know, if you're never spiking above 10, then let's change your range to nine. And then eventually we can change it to eight. Um, and then that way, you know, that you're just not, you know, you know, that the meals that you're eating are slow enough carbs that they don't overwhelm a spike. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. 
All right, and then I think we have time for one more here. So how can you tell if your metabolism has flicked the switch when you are fasting? Does the CGM tell you that? No. So the CGM is not really going to tell you that. Uh, what's going to tell you that is that you're not hungry the next morning, right? And so um, what happens for people that, um, that struggle with fasting is they're not flipping the switch and they're basically um, using their stored glycogen. And we only store about 2,000 calories of glycogen. So overnight, you can put a pretty good dent into that. And, um, and so your, your body doesn't want to run out of glycogen. Um, if, you, yeah. you know, if you run out of glycogen in your liver, that could be catastrophic. Um, so as the glycogen stores go down, you start getting really hungry. And so what you know is if, you stop, if you're not getting hungry, it means that you're not tapping into that glycogen because you're flipping into fat burning and you're using yeah. fat for fuel. Yeah. And, uh, as you get better at that uh, and you, as your metabolic switch gets really good, um, you kind of lose hunger. It's, 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 it's a really interesting phenomena for people. Uh, and a lot of people will tell me that they, you know, what they thought was hunger and what actual hunger is are two different things. Yeah. And so, um, so anyways, you, you're, you're going to know that you're flipping the metabolic switch just because fasting is, is easy. Cool. Yeah, I guess that's you. I've also heard you say before, like if you are trying to fast and like extend it or something, and you're just absolutely starving, it's really not worth it. You, it's you haven't switched, right? No. Yeah, you're you're not switching into fat burning, which is why we're doing it. And mm -hmm. then secondly, um, you know, you're you're not burning that much fat. Um, and if you you know go and eat you know two thousand extra calories because you got so hungry, um, mm -hmm. you're you're going to actually have not kind of created an energy deficit you're going to be back in energy surplus so yeah, yeah. It, it um and you know I, i've said this i think on both of the the first two episodes it's so important to listen to your body you know it's it's gonna if it's gonna tell you yeah okay so i think that's all the time we have for questions today that was great so if you have any more questions of course leave them in the comments uh under this post on the community, there'll be a link in the description to get to the community page where you can leave those comments and we'll answer a few of them on each uh, each podcast. And then some weeks we'll do this one with all questions like this. We can get through a bunch of them. So keep the questions coming. All right. So we will go on to our uh, case study for this week. So we'll play the video of the patient case study for this week, and then we will come back and talk about it after. So play that now. Dr. Brendan Byrne, Medical Director of Lifestyle Rx here got another case study for you. This week, we're going to talk about age-related type 2 diabetes. So our case study is for RT, a 72-year-old man who was diagnosed at the age of 69. Uh, he presented on glicoside metformin with a hemoglobin A1c of 7.9% and a BMI of 37.6. His goal was to lose weight and have more energy. So remember, in our model, what we see determining blood sugar control is this balance between the pancreas's ability to produce insulin and the resistance that that insulin faces in the body. So pancreatic beta cell capacity versus insulin resistance is going to determine kind of your blood sugar control or your hemoglobin A1c. So for this patient, what we see is what we call moderate insulin resistance. It's under two times normal. Pancreatic beta function of 76.7, so essentially normal, and a hemoglobin A1c of 7.9, so poorly controlled diabetes, uh, despite two medications. So as we've talked about in our model, you know, insulin resistance is predominantly driven by fat in the liver. And we generally see, or it's generally accepted that there's probably about 400 grams of fat in the liver that drives this process. 
And what we learned from the direct study is that it takes about a 15% weight loss to reverse the hepatic insulin resistance that's responsible. This is a pattern that we see quite commonly, and it's, it's one of the subtypes, age-related. So um, moderate insulin resistance uh, accompanied by minimal pancreatic beta cell comp compensation. So the, the beta function is kind of normal, low normal, or just above normal, but not really very high. And what we generally see is that this presents in patients kind of after age 65, and it's very responsive to weight loss and exercise. So this patient began our program and learned the four plus two strategy and went through the 12 week program with a core behavior every week. Uh, and really the goal here was to find a path of lifestyle behaviors um, that would help him reverse the insulin resistance and get control of that hemoglobin A1C. So the goal for RT was to achieve remission of type 2 diabetes. Let's look at the progress. So at the beginning of the 12 weeks, uh, BMI, as we said, 37.6. At the end of 12 weeks, 32.4. So 13.9% weight loss. And in our model, that would say that's pretty close to weight target. And so much of the insulin resistance should be gone. So the initial hemoglobin A1C of 7.9 is now 5.7. So with that weight loss, the insulin resistance has improved. And with the removal of that insulin resistance, uh, RT has enough insulin to have normal blood sugars. And if we look at this in terms of other behaviors, so this is kind of from our wellness quotient, we actually measure behaviors. So uh, RT's initial nutrition score was six. At the end of the program, it was 7.8. Um, but exercise was five. And at the end of the program, 8.1. And these are probably the two big drivers, but especially the exercise here. In this subtype of type 2 diabetes, we really see the, the role of exercise. So our conclusions are with age-related type 2 diabetes, increased focus on exercise in addition to nutrition has a powerful effect, as we've seen here with this case study. And finally, RT's goals were achieved. He certainly lost weight and he reported feeling much, much better. Yeah, I really like this, this case study because um, it really demonstrates, uh, you know, again, another one of the subtypes of type 2 diabetes, and it drives home how important not just nutrition, but also exercise is, uh, and especially for some people. So mm -hmm. um, it also shows just what's possible in 12 weeks. It's a pretty impressive change in 12 yeah, weeks. Yeah, definitely. Time. Yeah, for sure. Okay, and then we'll wrap up with your thought of the week. So the thought of the week actually goes back to our last question. You know, if it feels really hard, something's not working. So the last question we were talking about was fasting. You know, if you're you're being really hungry when you're fasting, it's actually not working. So um, you need to back off a little bit and take it slow. Um, so uh, same same thing with exercise. If it's if it's really really hard, it's you're just not fit enough to do that. So just just back off a little bit and. You know, uh, you want to train, not strain. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So thank you so much for listening this week. It was uh, great to have you here again. Uh, once again, the usual reminders. Um, if you are interested in signing up for the Lifestyle Rx program and you're in one of the places where it's offered, which is currently BC, Alberta, Ontario, you can go to lifestylerx.io and register there. Um, if you're anywhere else and listening to us, we're glad to have you. Um, you can always join our community and uh, go read through all the resources in there, ask questions, and um, participate that way. Um, if you know anybody that you think would be a uh, benefit from this, feel free to share the podcast with them. It's a nice, easy way to get them in and get them learning about this topic. So we um, share the link, share wherever you're listening uh, to someone that you know. And if you can leave a like, subscribe, review, whatever the system is where you're listening, we would really appreciate that. So thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you next week.